This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hello, I'm James Mackenzie Watson. I'm here talking with Sam Elliott for the Right Way Podcast about my book Denizen. Well, yeah, thank you so much for introducing tonight's episode there, James Mackenzie Watson, and hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this uh, episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. person whom you heard uh, introducing this episode, beautifully introducing this episode, I should say, is none other than tonight's guest of the show, a very special episode of the program, James Mackenzie Watson. Uh, James Mackenzie Watson and I are celebrating in style the uh, final conclusion to, the definitive conclusion to the Right Way podcast programs are running for the year. So the final leg of the show's run, as it were, for 2022, which has been an absolutely jam-packed session. Thus, therefore, and by virtue of that as well as the guest and the quality of James Mackenzie Watson and his work and his general being good human and a delight to interview, as well as how much I love Denison, made him the perfect guest to cap off this year. So yeah, it was an absolute pleasure talking and discussing with James Mackenzie Watson, his debut novel, uh, which was published uh, with the good folks at Penguin Random House. It rose to prominence when it took out the 2021 Penguin Literary Prize, which is for those in the know, pretty much one of the, the best sort of uh, prestigious, most prestigious sort of awards, uh, literary awards that uh, is available on offer in Australia. So I think they get something insane every year. I believe that the year James won, and I'm probably off, but it was like something like 800 manuscripts that they that they worked their way through uh, before they found uh, what became Denizen, or what was titled as Denizen, which is what James Mackenzie Watson I discussed tonight on the program. But yes, James Mackenzie Watson's uh, certainly no stranger to writing fiction. A lot of his short stories and other writings have appeared within a lot of prestigious publications within Australia, including The Guardian and Mean Jean, Kill Your Darlings in the Newtown Review of Books. Uh, not only does he also write uh, short form as well as long form, but he also is a co-host of one of my favourite uh, Australian literary publication related programs, podcast programs, which is James and Ashley Stay at Home, which is available on all good podcast streaming uh, places. So I do recommend that you get stuck in there. I listen to it on Spotify. I dare say it would be on Apple as well. Um, but yeah, do check that out because James and Ashley Stay at Home. Ashley Collegiate and Blunt is also a lovely human and writer as well. So you're going to be hearing me discuss with her her new book next year. But uh, let me not get sidetracked. I do have a tendency to do that. So tonight's episode, I had the good fortune of speaking to a lovely human, incredible writer, James Mackenzie Watson, discussing with me his debut published novel with Penguin Random House, Denizen. James, thanks so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this evening. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so good. I feel like I've already confided something I probably wasn't supposed to, not yet <laughs> at this stage. So I think we're off to a good start. But um, what I always like to find out first is an oldie but a goodie, and it's where Denizen originated from. What sort of was it an idea? Was it an image? I must say, um, just a little bit of a side note before you answer that question, James, is that I always like looking at the acknowledgements of books. And I particularly enjoyed the, I think it's in the final paragraph of the acknowledgements, which you thank your mum, Trish. And you say yes. that this isn't particularly perhaps the best book by way of thanking for 28 years of, you know, absolutely devoted um, motherly care. So I did like that line. Um, but yeah, I, I, it's so fascinating to, to read the acknowledgements like that. So anyway, where did where did the idea originate for Dennis and James? Tell me. Um, well, you've sort of, uh, I mean, you've certainly picked up on, uh, you know, with that bit in the acknowledgements that it is certainly a book that 
comes from a very personal place. It's a book mm. that comes from, um, you know, is drawn in a lot of ways from from my own experiences. Not so much my my experiences directly, things that I've lived, but certainly things that I that I saw, you know, was aware of happening um, in rural New South Wales where I grew up. Uh, Denison's a story about, uh, well, it's largely about mental health and mental health care in the bush, um, and that's something that I certainly had. Um, you know, a degree of experience with. I was a teenager, um, you know, growing up in Coonabarabran in central West New South Wales. Um, and I certainly went through a period in my adolescence when I wasn't in a good place and was engaged uh, with those services. Um, and, you know, writing Denizen originally, you asked, you know, what, what was the, the point where it came from? Uh, writing, the, the, its first point of inspiration was that it was therapy for me. You know, I knew that I wanted to write about about the bush and about mental health in the bush. Um, and I guess this was this was just the form that that, that, that manifested as. Um, there are a few, there are a couple of different strands uh, that came together though with Denizen. Another one is when I was a teenager, uh, my creative outlet was was filmmaking rather than writing. I was sure I was going to be a filmmaker. Um, and a lot of the early manuscripts I wrote when I moved away from the bush and moved to Sydney when I was uh, 19 were based on um, films that I'd made as a teenager. And the and Denizen has its origins in a, in a film I made when I was 15 as well called The Creek, which is, was about a group of teenagers who go on a camping trip to a creek when something horrible happens. And that's sort of uh, forms the shape of the middle act of, of what is Denizen now. Um, so I guess it's it's it came from, you know, those personal experiences of seeing mental health care in the bush, seeing the way that mental health can manifest in, in some really horrific um, outcomes in the bush, specifically in the bush, as opposed to the city, um, but also, yeah, drawing on on stories I told as a teenager and things I'd been fascinated about as a teenager. Interesting. It's, it's really interesting, particularly because in terms of the origins of being a filmmaker and then how that sort of influenced long form writing, because there's such two different yeah. sort of creative uh, mediums. I'm always fascinated to hear that. I wanted to know early on, and uh, there was a reference that I kind of felt very seen because Burjo's catchphrase is something that I used to watch <laughs> with, with with my mother. Um, so, yeah, certainly, certainly tapped into something there. But when... Parker doesn't eat his peas, I believe. I believe he doesn't eat his peas and he gets sent out. So he's denied, you know, the joys of watching Burjo's catchphrase. But there's a, it's a relatively throwaway line, I feel, but it was still kind of, for me, summed up so much of what I felt that Denison was about, which is about he needs to learn to face consequences or words to that effect. Mm. I might be paraphrasing there a little bit. And I wondered because I felt that that was a carry-on throughout different sort of themes and stages of the book, James, in terms of us kind of... Uh, equal parts facing our consequences and shying away from them, dedicating our lifetime yes. to kind of not facing them. And I wanted to know roughly as to if that was something that you thought about organically or if that's something that I've just interpreted in terms of this oneself facing consequences or spending a lifetime trying to avoid them, obviously a lot of the time to the detriment of that person. No, absolutely something that was conscious. And again, specifically through the lens of, of mental health, you know, mm. mental health is something that I'm fascinated by as a subject, um, you know, both, as I said, in terms of my lived experience as an adolescence in the bush, but also, you know, I work as a nurse now in, in country New South Wales. I've spent two years working in emergency here. And so much of, of that job is uh, is dealing with mental health presentations and people, you know, in the in the grips of mental health crises. So I've, you know, been quite lucky in that I've seen um, seen that topic from both sides of that divide. And you know, the idea of consequences, and obviously, you know, that we have to live with our our consequences and our our actions, is something that's very basic. That I think, you know, it's a principle most people would agree with. Mm. But it becomes really 
interesting and, you know, a bit murky and a bit harder to pin down in the context of acute mental health. Mm. You know, when when people do things in the midst of uh, episodes of acute mental illness, you know, they can do awful things, violent things, tragic things, and they're things that, you know, obviously we don't want to condone or or don't want to excuse away, um, but the, you know, there are factors that, that play into uh, these people doing things in the context of mental health that you have to take into account. Mm. Um, and, it, you know, the question then becomes, well, you know, how much of, of these actions, how much of these consequences can people really be held to account to when they're acting, you know, in a way that's out of control, when there's other factors at play? Um, and I think it becomes a really interesting and a really ambiguous moral question, an ethical question. Um, it's not as clear cut as, you know, that you, well, I guess everyone has to live with the consequences of their actions, but it's not as clear cut as to, uh, you know, exactly where the responsibility for those consequences and those actions lie. And that was something that I was really really keen to try to explore explicitly in Denison. It's interesting that you mentioned about how it, it, it's it's murky and it's kind of offset by what is the perception as well as what's tied into to one's mental health and there are certain actions yes. that you know can't be condoned but they need to be understood I guess in that particular yes. sort of realm and that's obviously what you've dedicated to understanding within Denison or at least posing the questions and there was another sort of statement that was repeated several times by Parker's mother and I, but I think it was equal parts she was saying it to herself as much as to him which is just be good and I wanted mm. you to talk a little bit about that as well James because to me that's sort of this unobtainable sort of state of being as well as one's behavior where it's it's to to yes to elevate something beyond what a what even a mortal can do much less someone that potentially might have mental health issues as well yes again was that something that i picked up on or or how's that sort of work there no absolutely yeah absolutely that's definitely something um that i was really keen to to try to explore in writing as much Mm. you know for myself these are things that that i find so interesting and that i've sat with and thought with for so long um that you know a lot of what in the book uh, on these topics is is me exploring these things and trying to work them out uh, for myself. Mm. I think you know that idea of um, of just be good. There's a really interesting shift that I think you know I've certainly seen, particularly in the bush, where conversations about mental health care are perhaps a little bit. Uh, you know, slower to progress in the same way that they have in the city in recent years as people's understanding of these things get gets better. But nonetheless, there's been this really fascinating shift in the mental health conversation in the last couple of years where people are really, you know, I think understanding things with a more genuine empathy and compassion that they might have once upon a time and understanding that people who again, you know, do awful things, commit abhorrent acts in the grips of mental health, are mental ill health, are often suffering just as much as uh, you know the people that they that they inflict these actions on, um, and that that you know it can be very very hard to empathise or feel compassion for someone who does something horrific. But I think there is this growing understanding and awareness that you know that people in the grips of mental uh, mental illness, acute mental illness, are suffering immensely. Mm. Um, and as that understanding, I think, has come to you know come to light, and and more people are able to appreciate that the the conversations sort of shifting from people framing mental ill health as you know the the patient the sufferer um and the mental illness versus the family and friends to the person and their family and friends versus the mental illness you know the mental illness kind of becomes the antagonist the enemy and i think 
that's really important in understanding. Well, you know, that's certainly something that I wanted to explore uh, in Denizen. Um, and I know that I've written a novel that is quite provocative in trying to push people to think about some of these things in a way that, you know, perhaps they wouldn't naturally want to think about them, you know, because it is confronting, because it is difficult. But I think that's a really important thing to think about and understand, you know, when you think about, as you say, Parker, through the book, he's got this refrain of, of just be good, of just trying to control his behaviour and, of course, finds that that's much easier said than done. And actually, mm. in a lot of ways, it's it's completely out of his hands. And so, you know, what I'm saying about this reframing of its people and their families and friends versus the mental health as opposed to the person and the mental health versus the family and friends, it's, I think, this growing understanding that, um, you know, people like Parker are not necessarily, I mean, they're still responsible for the things they do, obviously, but there are so many mitigating factors. It's not as easy as it sounds to just be good, you know, to just get on with it, to just get over it, to not be the way they are or act the way they are. Um, And as I say, it's tricky and it's nuanced, but I hope that Denizen, um, you know, prompts some some thinking and some questions in the people uh, that that are reading it um, about these things that they might not have otherwise occurred to them. Definitely, and I mean, in terms of you mentioning with the if, if it being confronting, I think by by virtue of of the storyline itself, it kind of needs to be. And the way I would yeah. kind of sort of talk about, or what the way I looked at it is that it depicted the totality of the character, so the dichotomy that went on. So there's the tormentor and the carer as well, and that that part that you mentioned also as well, James, in terms of the mental health issues being separate to the person but part of the person and appreciating that yes. so then that is viewed as the, the issue that needs to be taken place of so for example with parker's mother there's times of you know pure motherly care there's the tucking in during during bedtime a couple of points there's you know different when you're sick there's concern that's displayed throughout um birthday presents you know all that sort of stuff it's not this singularly um sort of malicious or or sadistic sort of torment there's the 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 balance there and i feel like yeah that's that's my takeaway from it james is that you wanted to kind of depict the totality of the dichotomy of the the two sides this this different sort of person there is that what kind of was going on yeah absolutely and i guess to illustrate as well that you know life isn't as simple as there being um villains and good guys you know life is complicated people are complicated um it's exactly as you say it's not black and white and it is that can be such a hard thing to appreciate and to hold on to when people are acting in really horrific violent ways and so for example in the book parker's mother um who is you know a character who's complicated by her own mental health issues she's quite an abusive caregiver to Parker at times when he's a child, um, you know, quite violent, quite uh, angry, but, you know, she's not evil. She's not bad. She's a woman also suffering immensely uh, for, you know, whatever her own issues are, but also the fact that she's, you know, in an isolated rural environment, she doesn't have the care available to her. She's basically raising a child on her own. There's, you know, the point being that people are far more than their behaviour. It's always more nuanced and more complicated than than one action, uh, no matter how abhorrent that seems. Um, and it's such an important thing to be able to understand in, in appreciating why people do the things they do. Very much so. And I feel that, again, so there's, there, there's situations where there are those such as Parker's mother that you've mentioned in terms of presenting more sort of um, obviously in terms of mental health issues and then that's for more kind of defines that. But then there's also, and I found this quite interesting with the sort of the character of Ruben in terms mm. of um, Parker's sort of interaction with him as well. Um, and there's, I'm, I'm, I'm treading lightly because I just don't want to spoil <laughs> anything, but 
towards the climax, there's a there's a line that Ruben says about if it wasn't uh, if I wasn't there, you still would have done something bad or words to that effect. Mm. And I found that to be so interesting because that in itself also, and I guess this is kind of what I was touching on with my first question about facing consequences or learning to face consequences, yes. and something that I thought that you wanted to explore as well in terms of how much of our behavior can be defined by ourselves and then yes. that's a bit of a slippery slope because then you then you've got to go and yeah exactly like into the mental health factor and then that of the other people the influence of other people as well and that can be not necessarily just a bad thing and certainly not just shown as a bad thing within denizen i mean i wanted to kind of touch yes. on as well the the how beneficial like naily is um the character of naily with with parker and you know lifelong that sort of thing Tell me a little bit about that, James, what's going on there. Uh, in terms of Parker's relationship with Nay League, you mean, and how that friendship... In terms of, yeah, in terms of the different positive and negative aspects that can be shown, not necessarily just within our own actions by ourselves, but the influence of others. So there was the case of Ruben, which is the negative. Yes, sorry, yes, Kobe I understand what you're saying. And yeah. then the positive within, within yes. Nay League. And I guess this is, um, this is nature versus nurture, isn't it? This is it the is. whole debate about, mm. uh, you know, whether you are shaped by your environment and by the people and the things around you or whether, uh, you know, your behaviour and your uh, makeup is innate and inherited and something you don't have control over. Um, and again, you know, my hope with Denizen is to to maybe suggest that, again, it's not that simple. It's not a binary. It's not a dichotomy. It's there's such a combination of, of both. You know, Parker is intended to be um, a... A complicated character with a lot of a lot of factors going on you know in the first act he's a an angry uh unstable young boy you could argue that the environment he's in is contributing to that you know his own parents who have obviously got uh, their own issues um and you know these mental health issues playing into each other but then of course you know you can't know how much of that is genetic how much of that is just is just predisposition um and you know i've tried to illustrate through the book uh, you know the like you say the um the way external elements can not necessarily shape us but hook into things that are already there and really magnify them and you know send them um send them in directions that, that they wouldn't otherwise go so Reuben is Parker's cousin who's a terrible malign influence on on Parker in the first act and encourages Parker to do some really awful things that end up haunting him for the rest of his life whereas Naley is a friend that Parker has as a teenager who because Naley sees Parker as someone who's you know good and has worth and someone worth redeeming you know through through Naley's eyes Parker can see that in himself um and I know certainly you know as a teenager when I was going through difficult periods and when I was was facing my own mental health issues as a teenager, um, that so much of my recovery I owed to people who saw good in me. You know, mm. it's such a powerful thing to have people who reflect, you know, what they see in you to you, because otherwise it can be so easy to, you know, to get lost in in the marsh of your own um, self-loathing and warped idea of, of who you are and what you are. Um, and so I hope that with, you know, like you say, with characters like Ruben on one hand and Naley on the other, it demonstrates the way, uh, you know, people can be be uh, pulled back and forth um, in their decision-making and in the things that they're doing and the way that they're living. Um, but also underlying there are some factors that are immutable and can't be changed. And in, in Parker's case, you know, again, without without spoiling anything, there's there's some underlying factors there that that mean you know, things are always going to be difficult for him in a way that uh, that ultimately is hard to avoid. Things definitely will always be difficult. And I mean, you, you did sort of touch on there the positive impact of what friends can have, particularly from your own experiences. Yes. And it's with Naley and Hazel, I think there's one line about how Parker is 
is moved by how unchanged they are about his condition being medicated and that kind of like yeah just sort of in awe yeah. about that as well and i think that kind of touches on what you're saying there james in terms of the positive impact that people can have particularly with the support network of people that um have mental health issues within that sort of regard and that's something that endures throughout and i think that that's um I'm cutting a little bit ahead of myself, but it's kind of segued nicely into it. I wanted to talk a little bit about, at one point, Parker mentions kind of towards the latter half of the novel, if not the last last bit, about how his connection with Naley is the deepest that he has. And I like that because it kind of transcends romantic sort of intentions or interest. It's, it's, it's something deeper than that um, within this sort of understanding and acceptance. And there's also the revelation, which I don't want to reveal the revelation, but <laughs> I wanted you to talk a little bit about how this connection is so deep and what you're exploring with that, James. I think, I mean, like I said, you know, I my intention with Denizen was at its core to write a novel about about mental health in the country. And I guess mm. that's actually a, a more succinct answer to your first question about what was the starting point for this novel. It's a book about mental health in the country. It's a book about the way the isolation of the bush um, can exacerbate, augment, uh, you know, mental health conditions, but more specifically how it can affect the outcomes of mental health in the bush in a way that you just don't see in the city. Um, and, you know, like we've said with the characters, it's not black and white, it's nuanced, it's complicated. There are so many factors that play into how mental illness manifests in the bush and how these things play out in the bush. Um, and I, I, I hope that Denizen is a again a nuanced exploration of of all of that. It's not just examining the way things can go terribly wrong. It's also looking at um, you know the protective factors in the bush, and there are some incredible protective factors for mental ill health in the bush, and that's something that I've seen firsthand in the time that I've been out here, you know, working uh, in a, in a, a rural hospital. And I think one of those one of the biggest protective factors is community. You know, apart from the there's the geographical and social isolation of rural Australia, which we know plays into to poor mental health outcomes when people aren't connected. Um, and that's certainly something I've tried to explore in Denizen. But on the other hand, you know, we also know that research says that people in small country towns and in smaller um, centres like that tend to feel a stronger sense of community and of mm -hmm. belonging to where they live and to their um, to their place. And something that that Naley and Parker bond over in Denizen is the fact that they're both rural kids. You know, Naley's family owns the the farm next to Parker's family. Um, they, you know, they they bond over the fact that they're similar people in a small environment where you sort of, you know, you're not spoiled for choice in terms of of meeting people, you know, with um, similar outlooks and similar similar mindsets. Um, and throughout the book, certainly Naley is a huge protective factor for Parker, and I think that that's really important to be exploring and addressing. You know, if I'm going to be writing about a topic as broad as mental health in the bush, it's important to to look at. You know, it's not just the negatives, not just the you know the potentially worse outcomes that come about um, from from mental health being treated in the bush as opposed to the city, but the positives. And as I say, I think that connection is a big positive. It is definitely a big positive. And you did sort of touch on about mental health within sort of local communities and how people can feel a stronger sense of community, perhaps with yes. their larger city um, counterparts. I did want you to talk a little bit about that, James, and you did sort of touch on it there. But I was interested because there was a there was a line that was used a couple. Of, I feel at least once because it stood out to me was talking about the. Mr. Moodley, I think his name was Mr. Moodley, yeah. yep. that Parker saw, and he talked about, and it was it was good, it was good, there was a myriad, I was like jotting a few lines down there that were really good, but I wanted you to talk a little bit about, he was saying that Matthew was not a victim to the tension of Australia, the cyclical, yeah. the, the tension of rural Australia, because I think that that in itself is a very meaty 
subject that you sort of touched on there. What what to you is the tension within within rural Australia, and what was Mister Moodley sort of talking about or encapsulating there as this kind of ongoing plot? It's interesting. So the tension, the idea of the tension, is kind of the core of the novel, uh, but mm-hmm. it certainly wasn't always that way. I wrote four drafts of Denizen before I kind of realised this is what I'm writing about, mm-hmm. and I think that's because I know that I write. You know, like I said, I write for therapy. I write because I find it so helpful in exploring things that I'm interested in and that I feel passionate about. And when I started writing Denizen, I wrote the first draft when I was 22. And it wasn't, you know, a it wasn't an exploration of mental health in the bush in the way it is now. It was very much um, me kind of trying to expunge some of my anger and my grief about things that had happened and things that I'd seen and things that had happened to people I knew in the bush when I was growing up. And, you know, it was quite a, a short, sharp, angry, cynical, acidic novel. Um, and as time went on, I realised, oh, if I want people to read this, I need to, need to make it a bit more readable than it is in its current form and, and flesh it out and try to kind of explore you know, the what, what was really the core idea of the story and what I was getting at, which up until that point had been entirely unco- um, unconscious. And it wasn't until I got to a point in 2019 when I was uh, starting to pitch the novel to publishers and preparing a pitch, you know, and I, I realised I need to be able to succinctly identify what this novel is about in a couple of words. And I sat down and, and brainstormed for a long time and I realised what it's about is this idea of the tension. So mm-hmm. in the novel, the tension is this idea that Uh, Rural Australia simultaneously celebrates how harsh the country is and how unforgiving the land and, you know, the climate and the circumstances are. Simultaneously celebrates that and how harsh, sorry, how stoic the people are and how people Mm. just get on with things. But no one seems to realise that those two ideals are completely incompatible and that trying to combine them almost invariably ends in tragedy Mm. because you end up with a community that you know, loves and fetishizes how difficult the conditions are, I guess, because implicitly it implies how strong they are to be able to live there and to Mm. get on with it. But then also loves and fetishizes this idea of just getting on with it and she'll be right and, you know, not complaining. Um, And as I say that, you know, that they don't, they don't work together at all. And when that becomes as ingrained in the culture as, as I think it has been for a long time in a lot of these uh, you know, particularly the, I know from experience, the kind of places that I grew up, rural New South Wales, it means that people people end up dying or worse, you know, um, committing horrible acts of violence out of desperation. And so Mr. Moodley is a, is a science teacher at the high school where Parker works. Um, he's a, a South African immigrant, which I did intentionally, you know, I wanted the character who was reflecting on this to be someone as far removed from the mm. culture as, well, I guess if I wanted someone as far removed as possible, I probably wouldn't have chosen South Africa. There's probably a lot of crossover between South African and Australian culture, but regardless, someone who's, you know, not from there can pass judgment a bit more impartially um, to point this out to Parker. Uh, And, you know, I think it's there explicitly in the novel, this idea of the tension. I think it, it underpins a lot of the events of the novel. It's certainly, you know, the idea, it's what I wanted people to get to the end of the book of thinking about and realising. Um, so as I say, it's there explicitly, but it's also, it's it's littered throughout the novel. And as I say, it was what the novel was about far before I realised that that's what it was about. Wow. Isn't it interesting that you mentioned that there was like, like four different sort of drafts and the first was shorter, yeah. um, acidic as you put it, I like that, that sort of description uh, before you realised essentially what the story was that you wanted to say. Um, particularly, and you, you mentioned, you also mentioned online there in terms of saying that um, you kind of needed to, alter or add some things to try and 
so that people would potentially read it. And I found that yeah. to be interesting because with this, and it is the, 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 the subject matter is confronting because it needs to be, I think. I don't, I don't think you can really kind of have like this sort of sanitized, truncated version where you where you dance around um, mental health because I think that that would be to the, the detriment of it. You're much more well-versed in the James within your, within your sort of profession, et cetera, than, than I certainly am from the outside looking. And I just, I just know the importance of that. And I did wonder if there was a, if there was a case of there was a, there was a period where it was in yourself uh, that was concerned about potential, uh, how potentially confronting it might be, or if that was posed later, way down later, after kind of taking out the Penguin Literary Prize type situation, and that then was a, a question you pose yourself, because I guess that that's always a sort of um, a balance that right in my space is to to write fearlessly, but then yes. um, is there, does there come a point where you're like, well, okay, well, posing these questions of, of, of self saying, well, that's what it needs to be, but is the general reader. I don't know. Were these questions that you did evidently ask yourself, James, I guess? Yeah, absolutely. Not until quite far into the process of writing it. And that's Mm. because, as I've said, I know that my writing process is for me, first and foremost. I'm very lucky that I... I write because, uh, you know, I love it. I write because it's so incredibly cathartic for me. Mm. And I think, I mean, it's very easy to say this and I might be proven wrong if it came to pass, but I think that I would be more than happy to write for the rest of my life, even if no one was reading it, because I know that, you know, that I do it because I I find it so therapeutic. I find the process of being able to um, work through thoughts and feelings and clarify them to myself so helpful um you know and if if it if the end product is something that people are interested in reading that they get something from reading that's even better but mm. because that was how i approached writing denizen you know i wrote it um without an eye to an audience the first draft or two was provocative you know it was it was me kind of saying i had to feel these things now you read them which mm. is a terrible way to approach writing because, you know, you're basically giving the middle finger to an audience you don't even have yet. Mm. Um, and it was because I was angry. I was angry about, the, as I say, the things that I'd seen, experienced, uh, you know, witnessed, knew that were happening when I was growing up. Um, and I just, I, I left the bush and left my adolescence so full of, of anger and sadness about all this stuff. And it kind of came out in this big, um, like I said, acidic mess in the first draft. The first, I think the second draft, or maybe the third draft, um, I gave it to a few people to read. And the feedback was unanimously, there's some good stuff here, um, but this is hard going and hard to read. And I think you're going to struggle to find an audience for it. And I realised that what the problem was, was not necessarily the content, uh, but it was how I was characterising Parker. So Parker is, you know, he's a, he's, He's a character that I hope people feel a sense of compassion for connection with the whole way through, but he's certainly not a character who is always making decisions that the reader is going to be able to condone, Mm. you know, much less um, agree with. And that's because a lot of what he's doing, he's doing, you know, being misguided terribly by other people or being misguided terribly by his own head and his own instincts. And I think the difficulty with the first draft was that there wasn't enough introspection and enough context around what was happening and people the people who read it came away with you know how confronting what was happening in the book was but without a sense of connection to parker or compassion for parker that would have made that worthwhile and the book or not worthwhile but you know more palatable the book that i really lent on in terms of you know as a a template for how to go about doing this uh you know how to write parker as a more 
introspective protagonist that readers could connect with was Lolita. Mm. Um, because I think Lolita is, it's certainly the best example I can think of, of a book that presents an incredibly unlikable, difficult protagonist who we don't agree with and don't condone, but it makes you, you feel for Humbert, you know, and like you, you get to the end of Lolita. I've said this a few times to people recently, you get, to, I got to the end of Lolita and felt like I'd been groomed by Humbert. And that that's because it's such a clever book in that it brings you so deeply into his point of view that you kind of forget, you can almost forget this guy's a pedophile. Like mm. I'm not, you know, he, this, this is abhorrent what he's doing and his actions and his motivations are abhorrent, but it's so beautifully written so firmly from his point of view that we're kind of able to connect with him and empathize with him because his introspection is told so singly from his point of view. And that was my hope with Denison was, as I say, I know that, Parker is a character that is going to be difficult to connect with at times because you can't agree with the things that he's doing, with the conclusions he's drawing. But hopefully, you know, you know, the problem with those early drafts was that there wasn't enough context. Hopefully by giving him more context and giving him more introspection and trying to put readers more firmly into his head, um, you know, that's what made the book work. And that required a lot of the first draft was 60,000 words. The draft that won the Penguin Literary Prize, I think, was 105. And that's because it needed the context and it needed the content to make Parker a character that that the audience could could connect with. The book was originally just drafts, sorry, just acts two and three. The first act of the book as it is currently is Parker's childhood. None of that was there in the first draft. And that was, you know, I realised it's not enough to show Parker's actions now. You know, Mm. we need to show how this has come about and why this is the case so the reader can you know, see what what happens in the in the second half of the book, and be able to you know relate that to what happens in the first half to give it more context. It's interesting that you mentioned that um, in the first draft or second draft there was only parts acts acts two and three. I think there's a way which you put it um, without the without the the sort of youth of Parker to kind of and I, I assume I assume that the part two constitutes leading up to what happens with um, with Ruben and Toby and then and everything from there, no spoilies. But um, I just found that to be so interesting, particularly also when you were citing uh, Lolita as well, because I did not think of um, Humbert Humbert when I was thinking of of Parker. Um, I think that, I, I think it, it's largely due in part to, uh, I never felt alienated from Parker. And I mean, I understood, I understand, you know, what happens towards the end, but in terms of him in general, and yeah, there's certain circumstances where you go, okay, well, that's something that I myself would not do. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. But never at any point did it ever come to a point where I felt that I was so alienated that I was unable to continue reading or anything like that. I just he was just such a fully fleshed character that I feel that that's so engaging. And there are people, there are acts that everyone uh, knows that might potentially do something that's absolutely you know deplorable. But uh, in order to create, and again, I guess this kind of touches on what I said as well with the depiction of what you've done there particularly of Parker's mum in terms of creating this totality of this character. So the warts and all to, you know, to show uh, the dichotomy that sort of goes on there of the care and the tormentor as well. So I guess that's just, it all boils down to really creating this fully realised character. I don't know. What do you reckon? Well, that's a huge compliment. Um, And I take the fact uh, that you say that you didn't feel alienated from Parker as the biggest compliment you could possibly give, because that was what I struggled with the most in the early drafts. And that was certainly my intention with a lot of the work in the later drafts was to make sure that that Parker was a character that um, that you could feel connected to that you could understand that you that you yeah, that you could understand without, you know, necessarily condoning. And that feels so important, because 
you know, again, I feel like there's a responsibility when you're writing about topics as complicated, uh, but also as contested as as mental ill health. Mm. You know, you, you really owe, uh, you know, that there's a lot of people that you owe the, you know, the justice of doing a good job in telling that story and making sure that it is nuanced and that it is showing, you know, a human and a person as opposed to a condition or an action. Yep. Um, and so, no, so the fact that, that you didn't feel alienated is a, is a huge compliment. <laughs> Spot on though, isn't it? I mean, like that's, that's, that's for, for me anyway, um, t- certainly with what you've embarked on there. And I mean, you've, you've, you know, your own experiences has colored that in much regard and you, ha- you have personal empirical experience so that, you know, adds weight and authority to what, to what you've written there. But I would imagine from the outside looking in that that would be such a frightening sort of prospect is to write the story as you see it as earnestly as possible. Mm-hmm. And then concerns about uh, which you haven't done. I don't, I don't think you've had to, had to do that too much. But in terms of the, this prospect of potentially sanitizing elements to make it more palatable, yes. presumably to to the reader. Um, but I feel, and this is just me hypothesizing here, is that the good folks at Ping Random House that read yes. some eight hundred, nine hundred, thousand page, thousand sorry um, manuscript submissions to 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 get to to Denizen thought that as well and said no what's and all unflinching you know vital for this sort of subject matter so it's it's tricky to talk about without spoiling anything mm. um so I, I, i'll be vague in how i talk about it um but you're right i was worried for a long time that denizen would never find publication uh because it was too dark mm. uh and specifically again without wanting to to spoil anything but but Specifically, because the way the way it resolves, mm. I was worried would be uh, just unpalatably unpalatably dark for mm. for a large publisher. And a couple of months before it won the Penguin Literary Prize, once it had been shortlisted, I had a conversation with an agent uh, who was interested in possibly representing me and Denizen if it didn't win the prize. Uh, but she was concerned that the ending was too dark, and she asked that I change that uh, to something more palatable uh, if it didn't win the prize, which I was determined to not do because, like I said, my, you know, my goal from the outset was to write something that felt real to me, that I felt reflected my experiences, that I felt reflected, again, the things that I'd seen that I know happen. And to change it and to shy away from that just felt like it would be such a cop-out. Because the people who live events like what happens in Denizen, and there are so many of them out there, and I know plenty of them as well uh, in rural New South Wales around where I grew up, they don't have the option to have the things that have happened to them toned down to make it more palatable to the rest of us. So why should literature exploring these things be any different? Um, I think, you know, the books that have most profoundly affected me, you know, that have changed my life and the way I think are ones that are unflinching in their examination of, for want of a less wanky way of putting it, reality. Um, And, you know, like you say, that warts and all, that acknowledgement that reality is dark sometimes and that shying away from that and, you know, refusing to talk about that or worse by altering the stories and the narratives we tell other people and ourselves to make it more palatable is, you know, that's denial and mm. denying that it happens does nothing to either 
help the people who were left in the aftermath of the things like this when they really do happen or prevent it from happening again. You know, I'm a firm believer that the only way to make progress in a space like this is to address it and acknowledge it and talk about it openly. And I think the worst reason to not talk about something is because it's too painful to acknowledge. You know, it doesn't make it go away. Um, and I'm so thankful and grateful that Penguin Random House and, and Meredith Kernow, uh, who's my publisher at Penguin, read oh, Denizen. Uh, she's awesome. She, yes, I, actually, I saw your interview with her. Yeah, um, yeah. From she's good last, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that she she saw that and she embraced that. And one of the first conversations I had with her after Denizen won the Penguin Literary Prize was, are you going to make me change the ending? And she said, no, but we want to uh, make the path there a little bit easier. Mm. And all that was was a continuation of what I'd been doing for five years anyway. It was making sure that the readers could follow Parker all the way to the end. You know, I'm very aware and I've been very aware ever since those first drafts when I kind of step back and realise I need to work harder to make this a bit more pleasant to read because no one's going to read it otherwise. I was very aware that I was asking a lot of the reader to follow Parker all the way through. And so I had a responsibility to the reader to make sure that they could be in his head and understand him as much as possible the whole way through. And that was more or less what, what Meredith's feedback prior to publication was as well. Um, but yeah, like I say, I mean, I know that it's confronting. I know that it's something, you know, I've had, I've seen a few a few reviews online where, where people have said, I left this book feeling cold and depressed and sick and I wouldn't recommend it to anyone because it's just so dark. Um, and I get that and that's absolutely fine. And I know it's not going to be for everyone and no one should, you know, pick up a book that they're not going to be able to get through reading without feeling that way. But on the other hand, I think it's vitally important that books like this exist for the people who do want to read them mm. and who are, you know, willing to, to tell, to hear a story that, that I know is something, you know, that things like this and worse happen frequently. Um, it's so important that we talk about it. It is. And I like the way that you put that in terms of um, people that do experience this in real life don't get to tone it down. You likened it to mm. toning down the novel itself. So I do really like that. I also like that you've obviously found the perfect home um, for that, particularly with Meredith. So yes, in terms absolutely. of in terms of just working on the the lead to to the climax rather than, you know, rather than changing yes. the climax itself. That's- particularly because I, I know that, you know, Penguin took a risk on it. Yeah. Um, we know that, I'm sure I've read, this is why Trent Dalton's books sell so well, is because uh, fiction with uplifting endings sell better because people talk about them. <laughs> that to have a, you know, a book that resolves in the way Denizen does is a huge risk for a big publisher like Penguin. And I'm so thankful and grateful and honoured and privileged that they clearly saw that, you know, the message of the book was worth telling regardless and that, the, you know, that it was important uh, to tell it in the, in the way that it exists now. That's a huge compliment, you know, to a writer. Absolutely. I got worried when you said that you were looking, did you, did, James, you don't look at reviews and stuff like that, do you? I, I wouldn't be able to. Oh, no. <laughs> so I, no, I, I think the first week Denizen came out when I was still kind of new and shiny and naive three yeah. months ago, I was like, oh, Goodreads, let's have a look. Oh, no. And I don't no. need to do that again. Yeah, no. Um, look, no, to be, to be absolutely, to be fair, the one, the one visit I just made to Goodreads, it was um, almost entirely incredibly kind reviews it's amazing it's such a weird feeling to know that people are reading what i've written and that they're enjoying it and that it's connecting with them um but it made me realize again this is not going to be put for everyone that's absolutely fine now every now and again my girlfriend will be like i had a look at tenders on, on goodreads and there were some good reviews I'm like that's good enough for me that's fine i don't need to know anything more than that i'm yeah i'm so glad because I, I i know i know some writers <laughs> that uh 
just totally fearless. Like they'll go and look at one star reviews on Goodreads and others that have uh, utilized the function, on, which I didn't know existed, which is you can lock yourself out of um, yeah. of Goodreads so that you can't go and torment yourself by by. It's funny, like, like I don't feel I don't feel tempted to do it because, like I said, I know that this is not going to be a book for everyone. And I spent the six months leading up to Denizen coming out, stealing myself for that. There's two elements to it, isn't there? There's the fact that, you know, people are going to pick it up in a bookshop uh, and potentially read it and and find it difficult, confronting, not for them. They don't like it. Or they just think it's shit. They just think it's ter- it doesn't have to be confronting for them to not read it. Maybe they just think I'm an awful writer and it's not worth reading. That's fine too. Um, but there's also the fact that, you know, I worried a lot prior to it coming out that people were going to draw conclusions about me and my life mm. and my experiences from Denison. And I've been very careful in a lot of the media I've done and talking about it to very clearly draw that line. You know, this is not autobiographical. This is not um, about things I've experienced. And anyone who's read the book will understand very quickly why that's um, the case. And to come back full circle to your first question, that's why I was so, um, that's why it's dedicated to my mum and the acknowledgement. There's a big chunk to my mum, mm. not just because, you know, she raised me and is my biggest cheerleader and I'm so thankful to have her in my life and love her unconditionally, but because I was really worried that people were going to read this book about the little boy with the horribly abusive mother and think, oh, this is a side of Trish that we haven't seen before. <laughs> Um, so I've been very clear to make sure people know that it is a work of fiction. I don't know what that says about me, but that's not that, that wouldn't just that just wouldn't be the first sort of questions I would be posing, even if I wasn't interviewing you and I just read it blind. Like I said, I read it blind. I don't know if that's because I read a lot, James, or I read a lot of um, confronting sort of um, yes. <laughs> air quotation confronting books. I don't know. It's a, it is an interesting one, but I'm 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 hopeful that that's not something that you're posed a lot. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it sounds like maybe you were posed that a bit. I'm hoping that you haven't had to get that sort of that sort of response down pat because that would be no. You know, <laughs> it just seems it just seems like a, it's, a, it's a line of questioning that I I feel like like you're an interviewer, so you're well versed in what you sort yes. of ask, etc. And I think it's just a good way to get off on the wrong foot really quickly to kind of belabor <laughs> a point that doesn't really mean sort of anything within the context of talking about the book. I don't know because you you quickly getting off topic i feel and you're more focusing on yeah the people that i'm thinking of are not they're not interviewers though they're people that knew me when i was a kid growing oh, up very fair. <laughs> you know people who people who were, were around when i was an, an unhappy teenager and you know saw me in that space and you know it's it's people who you know, it's it's care isn't it it's love it's people mm. who um read you know i know pe- there are people in my life who've read it and said that they felt so sad to think that i might have been right. able to draw on anything of my own emotional experiences to write denizen and i think that's why it's really important you know to make it clear that it's it's a work of fiction because i don't want people thinking that i have been through things like what are in in denizen very fair all right this is the question that i always always like to ask crux of the show um and I'm really, really excited to hear your response, James. I want to know if there ever was a point, uh, not necessarily within the writing of Denison, but within any of your sort of writing, this writerly journey that you've embarked on, that you know we hear up to this point talking to me, if there ever was a point that you were going to potentially give up and stop within your sort of writing vocation? And if so, what sort of precipitated that? And what was the sort of, what made you prevail over this sort of uh, time period of self crippling self-doubt? What made you push through to get to point talking to me i think because like you know like i've said i write for therapy i write because i find it so helpful i'm very lucky that i've never 
I don't think I've ever felt a sense of not wanting to write. However, there's certainly been times when I've felt a sense of not wanting to write for an audience mm. or to write professionally. And I think that's they're two very different things and it's important to be able to tease them apart. Um, and the thing that's that there's, you know, that's made me feel that at times in the past is I've got, you know, it's a long story and I won't go into it, but some health issues. I've got an autoimmune condition um, that particularly when I was first diagnosed, it's chronic EMBARA syndrome, basically. When I was first diagnosed in 2015, 15 and 16. And there were periods when I was really sick. And I thought it just wasn't going to be possible for me to, you know, to do anything beyond just writing purely for myself um, because of my health. Hmm. But that was quite nice. And there was a period uh, last year, this time last year, um, I had a a massive relapse of this same condition and was was wiped out for three months um, just before the, the structural edits of Denizen started. And same kind of thing, thinking, you know, if if I was to feel like this all the time, I, I wouldn't be able to write professionally. And obviously, I'm very lucky that with treatment, it came good again, and I'm well again now. But like I said, it's really nice to realise there's writing, and then there's writing for an audience. Mm. And writing, I don't think, is something that I'll certainly not something I've ever felt a desire to stop doing. And I hope I never do because it's therapy. It's a, you know, I feel like I'm addicted to it. I do it because it's so helpful for me writing books for for publishers and an audience is a different kettle of fish. (laughs) I hope that, you know, the stars align in such a way that I can do this until I'm dying of old age. Um, But it is lovely to realise that if I got to, you know, 45 and my health was terrible and writing professionally was something that just wasn't, didn't look feasible anymore, that that wouldn't stop me from writing. I know I'd still be at home tapping things out for myself. And that's really lovely because that's where I get the joy. And that's where, you know, that's what I enjoy about the process. Writing is in the writing. It's not in the publishing and promoting and not even doing things like this with, with people as wonderful as you, Sam. It's in the writing. And I'm very lucky that that's not something I ever feel like I don't want to do. Totally with you on that one, James. You've spoken to my soul there in terms of uh, writing <laughs> for me and joining the the, the sheer love of the writing. It can be therapeutic. I find it can be therapeutic as yeah. well. It's just the, the sheer enjoyment. Uh, I try to get it done. I, don't, I wouldn't claim that I do it every day, but certainly most days. And um, just the, the the love of the writing definitely uh, sustains. I think it's so important to to write for yourself. Um, yeah. Yeah. I it's think something that, that yeah. um, Carlo Vikanowska, who's one of my all-time favourite authors, he says in one of his books, there was a point in his life where, you know, he was garnering a lot of critical acclaim and making a name for himself and winning all these prizes. And then he realised, you know, none of that matters. The writing is in the writing. Mm. And it's something that I felt to some degree, and I'll this sounds horrifically ungrateful, um, with like the last three months I've done very little writing because I've been promoting Denizen and doing the publicity and doing the media and stuff. And it's been fantastic. And I've had so much fun and I feel so privileged and so lucky and just keep pinching myself that I've had this opportunity. But the whole time I've been thinking, I really wish I was writing. I Mm. would really like to be at home writing. Um, And that's quite a nice thing to realise, you know, because it means that there's always going to be that joy in the writing, I hope, um, regardless of whether it's terrible and whether it's just for me. And I don't know if you agree, Sam, I don't know if that's something that you relate to as well, that sense of it's it's in the writing, it's in the act of writing that you get that joy. It's yeah, 100%. I resonate with that absolutely, James. I mean, it's for me, look, I'll be completely honest with you. There was a there was a I've been doing it for a hot minute. I've been doing it since I'm 34. So I've been doing it since I was seriously since I was 18. Um yep. I, there was certainly, certainly, certainly a period where the passion's always been there, the love of the writing's always yes. been there, but I was definitely, I gotta tell you, I was I spent 
solid decade of absolute obsession with learning how to get published uh, and determining that that was the validation that 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 that, that was the yes. be all and end all. And I'll, I'll be yeah. honest, it, it took me a very long time, and I'm talking well into my late twenties, you know, kissing close to thirty, to realize that was a that was a terrible way to be. Uh, it leads to uh, long sleepless nights, just really just not a good headspace. Um, it's, it's something that you you think is like pretty straightforward concept to, to you know to gauge and to do but yeah man it took me a very long time to but i think that also that. that makes sense that that's the metric because everyone is telling you that's the metric yeah um and i think that's why it was such a revelation for me to be able to uncouple writing as an act from mm. writing as a you know as a job or as a um as something with that external recognition because when twitter and facebook and instagram and goodreads and everything else is telling you that the validation of writing is in the publication it's very yeah. hard to to separate yourself Absolutely. from that yeah definitely um but particularly within the context of of of, of you and denizen it's just uh, i'm glad that you know you said you don't want to use wanky terms but i'm going to use wanky terms. i'm glad that you're i'm glad that you were brave about it in terms of the way you approached it and you did write the story that you wanted to and it was unflinching uh and that it wasn't you know it, you didn't find yourself in a situation where you wouldn't have even been let you let yourself in a situation where you know you paired it back or you know essentially released the story out into a while that was no longer your story that you wanted to tell um i'm just so glad that you that you stuck to your guns with that because that just adds all this gravitas to it and just makes it so important. So it was really, really good, James, that you did do that. And, you. and you found you found your home, man. Like you, you found your home and you've got all the right attitude in terms of like writing for you. And very much I'm the same. I kind of look at like writing is one of those professions where so long as your mind without getting bleak, I mean, like we can't you know, prevent <laughs> potential, you know, being demented. But if you're not demented and you still have your faculties, like Tom Keneally took out the you know, Australian Historical Fiction Prize the other day, um, still writing, you know, a novel or two a year. He's like 86 or 87 years old. So that's goals. And that just shows, you know, you could keep doing this well into ripe old age um, if possible. And that's the dream, I guess, for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. James, look, I just want to say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the show tonight and um, appreciate you speaking to me on the show and being the last guest for 2022, man. That's absolutely wild. <laughs> Such an honour. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. There you go, everyone. There you have it. That was me and James McKenzie Watson discussing his debut novel, debut published novel, Denizen, uh, the winner of the 2021 Penguin Literary Prize. So huge congratulations to James for winning the Penguin Literary Prize for that year and for creating Denizen. Uh, so it was an absolute joy to read and joy to discuss with him on the program as well. So that is it for 2022. I cannot stress enough how much it has flown by, uh, nor can I overstress uh, how much I am continuing blown away by the level of talent and just amazing how much amazing people I get to speak to on the show with an endless succession constantly arriving as well so that's just uh, just above and beyond anything I could possibly have envisioned for the show when I originally set out to to start talking to writers about writing within this sort of capacity as well so I really can't stress that enough it's just been an absolute whirlwind roller coaster ride of a journey in the best possible way and uh yeah, it's good. It's, that being said, it's good to take a little bit of a break. I need to recharge my interview podcasting prowess producer abilities. No, my uh, batteries there in order to best be or be the best sort of interviewer and podcaster I can possibly be for 2023. But um, yeah, absolute pleasure talking with James McKenzie Watson about Denizen. So huge thanks to him. While I'm in the thanking mood, naturally, I want to thank you as well, not just for listening to this episode, but for listening to all other episodes on what we like to refer to as the proliferation 
writing back catalogue there. Also, uh, since the last episode, I have uploaded every episode, every single episode from the show's uh, origins from November 2020 through to now to Apple Podcasts as well. I cannot believe how easy that was and straightforward, so I'm most mortified that I hadn't yet done that, uh, but now it is. So if you listen to podcasts on Apple Podcasts, please be sure to give a follow on there. Just look up The Right Way Podcast. You will recognize the uh, very recognizable blue and yellow sort of logo there. Give it a follow. Tell everyone about it. Uh, that is just another streaming platform. So it's uh, increased the chance that people can uh, get to listen to it on their preferred streaming platform. Uh, I think that's the proper terminology for it, I imagine. I mean, you are streaming. I don't know. I feel like that's the right problem. Anyway, I digress because it's not really uh, that important. But what is important that it has been a beautiful year. I'm so lucky to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. Thank you so much for all my guests of 2022. Uh, and yeah, for those that um, stick with me in terms of my own Ridley journey, I greatly appreciate for all the words of encouragement and the general praise it's just it means so much uh, we are all in this together in that regard writing is seemingly a solitary endeavor but it's actually not you really need a good network of people so yeah it's very important I'm very lucky to have met some really really just truly wonderful humans as well as writers uh, within this sort of endeavor so thank you for everyone that's ever been kind to me within this pursuit and within my own writerly pursuits I can't stress that enough in this uh, interim in the interim I should say do keep watching this space be sure to be uh, following the Right Way Podcast Instagram page, uh, the Right Way Podcast, as well as my own Samuel Elliott author page, both of which will be uh, kept with, or I will keep you informed of the goings-on of my own Riley journey there as well. Who knows, maybe I'll have some juicy news for you soon, but uh, it is a crazy, crazy journey, as all writers know how long it can take to kind of get to halfway you want to go, but you always keep going, so keep writing, keep putting pen, a pen to paper and wrap succession as we like to call it but uh, in the interim keep tuned keep listening to the old episodes if you haven't already keep keep yourself informed i should say by checking out the instagram and the social medias also there's the facebook pages as well because i'll continue to upload anything of note on there but in the interim if i don't get to speak to you again if you don't get to hear my sweet sultry voice then please uh have a lovely end to 2022 nice and safe for the holidays and uh, I hope that you're as excited about what would potentially evolve or what can, the, the endless potential, I should say, for 2023, because I am most certainly excited as to where we are heading. Life is a lot better for me than it was uh, this time last year, friends. I can't stress that enough. Yeah, so life be good. But in the interim, I hope your life is going well as well and that you all have a lovely end to 2022 as well.